There is a phrase in chapter 17, verse 26 of Acts that one could easily gloss over if one were not careful. In the chapter, Paul is speaking to the philosophers in Athens. To them, he tailored the gospel message in order to bridge the gap between their understanding of, quote, an unknown God, which was their way of trying to cover all their bases, so to speak, since they believed in a plethora of gods. Paul said that the God who is unknown to them is the true and living God who made the heavens and the earth. He is the one who does not dwell in a temple made with human hands because he is greater than that. He is the one who, according to that verse in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And here's the phrase that I referenced. He says, having determined allotted periods of time and the boundaries of their dwelling. What Paul meant by that is that the true and living God who made all things, including all people, also determined when those people would live in the course of human history, as well as where they would live in the world. In other words, It is no accident that you were born in this century, at this time of the history of the world. It's no accident that you were either born an American citizen or have at some point migrated to America to dwell here now. That was not due to chance. It was not random. God determined that this would be the time in history when you would exist, each and every one of us, And he determined that this would be the place in the world where you would make your abode. I made a comment last week about those of us who are American having very little understanding of what it means to actually hunger or thirst. Yes, there may be times when we've been hungry or thirsty throughout our lives, perhaps even previous generations prior to significant industrialization and advances in technology knew a little bit more what that was like. And certainly there are many who struggle financially today who would be considered legitimately poor, who would experience hunger and thirst, the likes of which many of us do not know. Nevertheless, most of us do not have any idea what it means to truly hunger and thirst. Most of us go to a home after a long day out, an apartment, a room, a house, some other arrangement, even if it's not in the best condition. Most of us have a roof over our head every night. Most of us have food in our refrigerators and a meal on our tables throughout the course of the day. Most of us have what could be considered disposable income with which we purchase And consume many comforts. It may be the comfort of your favorite television show that you get to watch on your favorite network that you stream for which you pay a subscription. It may be the comfort of a favorite shirt, pants, or dress. Whatever it is for you, it's more than just simply rags that cover your body from the weather. You have a particular fashion and you shop according to that fashion, even if it costs a little extra money. For some of you, it's the comfort of your favorite vehicle, whatever that vehicle is. Many purchase what will get them from point A to point B, but there's a significant portion of the population who purchase what's going to make them look good getting from point A to point B. Maybe the comfort of your favorite food. Again, 
which is more than just fuel for your body. It is food that you purchase and consume because it tastes good. When you go to the store, you get more than just water and bread and some kind of protein and vegetables, more than just the basic food groups. You get stuff that you like to eat. Or you go to a restaurant where somebody else cooks stuff you like to eat. Of course, for some, it is the comfort of their favorite vice, alcohol, cigarettes, some other drug or recreational tool or activity. We have income enough to cover our basic needs, and then we have income to cover additional wants. Many of the things that I just listed, and perhaps others which I have not, we have come to think of as a part of our basic need when they really aren't. Now, I don't know what you use your disposable income on, and I'm not asking for a catalog of those things this morning, but I'd like for you to consider it for a moment this morning. Because when you, because of when you were born in the history of humanity, because of where you were born, you were likely in the group of those of us who have more than we need at any given moment in our lives. What is that more for you? Think about that for a moment. Now I'm going to ask you another question. Why? Why do you have that? If God is the one who, who appoints your boundaries of habitation and your times of habitation, the time at which you live in history, and the fact that you live here in America, and the fact that you have an abundance when many people in the rest of the world and in the history of the world do not. Why? Why has he given that to you? The answer to that question is the focus of our psalm for this morning, Psalm 67. If you haven't, go ahead and turn there. It's a short psalm, but it'll give us some good things to think about this morning. I'll read it for us this morning, then we'll pray and we'll look at it in greater detail. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to come before your word. We thank you that as Jesus prayed, your word sanctifies us. Do your sanctifying work in us this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The Psalms are, generally speaking, songs which either fall into the category of praises or prayers. And often they're a mixture of both. This psalm is largely a prayer, but it's a prayer based on a realization that God is worthy of our praise, particularly because of the way he's blessed his people. 
God has blessed us, but he's blessed us for a reason. This psalm is a prayer that both asks for the blessing of God as well as acknowledges the blessing of God. It asks for and acknowledges the blessing of God upon his people with the understanding that God has blessed his people not for our sake alone, but ultimately for the good of all people. This psalm is a prayer for the blessing of God upon his people so that the nations may know his salvation. To put it another way, the people of God are blessed of God, not for our own sake, but rather, again, so that the nations may come to know his salvation. There are three different points in this message. Point number one, we ought to pray for the Lord's blessing so that the nations may learn of his salvation, verses one and two. Point number two, we ought to pray for the nations to laud or praise the Lord for his salvation, verses three through five. And point number three, we ought to pray for the Lord's blessings so the nations may live according to his salvation, verses six and seven. That the nations may learn of his salvation, that the nations may laud, that's another word for praise, his salvation. I had to keep with the L's if you didn't catch that. That they may learn of his salvation, that they may laud his salvation, and that they may live according to his salvation. Let's look at the first point. We ought to pray for the Lord's blessing so that the nations may learn of his salvation. Verses 1 and 2 again. Look at the text. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. He says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Again, this is Hebrew poetry. Each of these terms represent the same request. They're not three different requests. Be gracious to us. Show us grace. Show us favor. Do for us what we cannot do. Bless us. Do good to us. Shower us with good things. Make your face to shine upon us. This is a euphemism. It's reminiscent of Aaron's priestly blessing for the sons of Israel from Numbers chapter 6. There in Numbers chapter 6, Moses said to Aaron that this is a blessing that Aaron as the high priest is to give to the sons of Israel. And the blessing goes as follows. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. That lift up his countenance is another way of saying, let his face shine upon you. To make one's face shine on someone else is, again, to look at them with favor. It's to smile on them. And again, all of this points to the same reality, the same prayer. The people of God are asking for the Lord's blessing. As we've often seen in the Psalms, there is some physical or tangible reality that's used to communicate spiritual truth. Last week, we looked at Psalm 63, which seems to have been written by David in response to fleeing to the wilderness of Judah when his son Absalom sought to murder and dethrone him. The physical reality of dwelling in a deserted wilderness was used by David to describe the spiritual reality, how he felt in his soul. He felt as if he were wandering around in a desert wilderness in his soul. He felt as if he were in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Physical reality is pointed to in Psalm 67 is that of the harvest. That becomes clear in context when we get to verse 6. The earth has yielded its increase or its produce and other versions. Theirs was an agrarian society, meaning their economy was based 
on the produce of the land around them. Having a successful harvest meant the society, the families that made up the society, had food to sustain them as well as for potential trade. They depended on the land for life. The land, of course, was tied to the covenant that God had with Israel. Their identity as a people was tied to this land, even as it was provided to them by the Lord. He provided this particular land for them. He cleared the land of pagan nations. He preserved his people on the land. In fact, part of the covenant with God made clear that as long as the people maintained their end of the bargain, as long as they kept the law of God as God had prescribed, he would continue to bless them in the land. Now, this particular land where Israel dwelt was no ordinary land. When the spies took stock of the land in the book of Numbers, they made clear that this particular land, the promised land, was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a fruitful land. It was a land that was healthy, had potential, was capable of sustaining a great people. In fact, the land of Israel, the strip of land that was promised to provide and provided to Israel by the Lord was a strategic piece of land in the region It was a strip of land that served as a a thoroughfare for surrounding nations. Any nations that sought to make trade with one another would naturally have to travel through this particular strip of land because it was the easiest way to travel. So that strip of land was extremely valuable. It was fruitful and strategic. But even though that was true, the people of God, knowing that the Lord is the true and living God, they acknowledged that none of that mattered if the Lord wasn't on their side. Therefore, as a part of their regular worship, they sought the Lord for his blessing upon them, and particularly that he would see that the land was fruitful for them. They prayed for this. I think it's a major difference between the Old Testament and New Testament believers. The Old Testament covenant tied their faith to a, a physical land. The New Testament ties our faith to spiritual blessings. This is what makes the so-called prosperity theology so tragic and unbiblical. We're not called upon to demand physical blessings from the Lord as New Testament believers. Israel did because that was the nature of their covenant with the Lord. The nature of their covenant specified physical blessings, material blessings. Now, the Lord may bless us physically and material today, but that's not necessarily a part of the new covenant in Christ. And this kind of confusion has led many people to think they should pray to God for physical or material blessing and that if they don't have enough faith, then that's why God doesn't provide it. It also has led many to assume that if they have enough faith, then God will keep them from all trial or hurts or physical sickness. And that's not been the experience of many of God's people throughout the history of the church. It's not wrong to pray for physical and material blessing today. We are commanded to pray for what makes us anxious to seek the Lord for our physical needs, but we're not to demand it as if our faith requires it. Back to the text, in light of the fact that the covenant of Israel was directly tied to the promise of a physical land, a fruitful and beautiful land, they prayed for the Lord to bless them. What's more significant about this prayer is not that they prayed for the Lord's blessing, but rather why they prayed for the Lord's blessing. Look back at the text again. They say, be gracious to us, bless us, make your face to shine upon us, verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. 
And why did God call Israel as a nation? Why did he set them apart as a people? Was it because they were good people? They were the nicest people around? Certainly not. It was ultimately so that his way would be known in the earth, his saving power among all nations. Israel was a nation, one nation of many nations. When God called Abraham in Genesis 13, the stated reason, I'm sorry, Genesis 12, the stated reason for his calling Abraham, who's the father of Isaac, who's the father of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the stated reason for God calling Abraham, making him into a great nation and blessing him was so that all people would be blessed through him. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The blessing of God upon his people, Israel, was never meant as an end. It was never intended to be a blessing for their benefit alone. The blessing of God upon his people, upon Israel, was to the end that all people would be blessed. God called Abraham, reaffirmed his covenant with Isaac and Jacob, reaffirmed and established parameters for the covenant to be applicable to a nation of people, blessed that people with land and prosperity, continually upheld upheld and preserved the people throughout their history, not for their sake but ultimately to the end that all people would be blessed through them. So when the people of God are here asking for the blessing of God to the end that all people would be blessed by the salvation of God, they're not asking for anything new. They're simply praying according to the promise that God had made to them. This has always been the plan of God for Israel. Not that they would be a special nation for themselves, but that they would be a nation through which blessing would go to all the other nations and peoples of the earth. I mentioned earlier that this particular land that they were given was strategic. It was strategic as it was the best possible route from nations in the north to get to the south and and likewise the other way around. God strategically gave this land to Israel, his nation, so that all the nations around them in the normal course of their existence, trading and doing business with other nations in the known world, in that region, so that they would have to travel through Israel. They would have to get to know the people of Israel with their monotheistic belief, their claim to worship the true and living God, their insistence upon the law of God as a way to life, and their staunch resistance of any religious syncretism. They were to serve and worship the Lord only. The nations would see this about them, observe this. They would see the abundant provision of the Lord for them. And they would call out, what must I do to be saved? This prayer for the blessing of God was not a new thing. This has always been the plan of God for his people. In praying this, Israel simply affirming their understanding of the reason for their existence in the mind of God. Likewise, the reason for our existence as a church is so that all people would come to know the true and living God through faith in Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Jesus came and said to them after he had risen from the dead, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the mission of the church. 
Those are the marching orders that our commander in chief left for us before he ascended to heaven. This is what you ought to be about as the church of Jesus Christ, making disciples of all nations. Not just doing your own thing and being concerned with your own self and your own little kingdoms and your own little part of the world, whatever that is, but making disciples of all nations. And that word for nations there in the original points to people groups, not just geographical regions. It's the word ethne. That's where we get ethnic from, ethnic groups, people groups. That's the point. And all of this, again, points to the future reality presented to us in Revelation chapter 5. We read that earlier. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And everyone said, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. I wonder if when you think of how the Lord has blessed you and in those times, those seasons when you pray for blessing, when you pray for the Lord to provide for you, are you only thinking of yourself? Do you ever consider why the Lord has saved you? why the Lord has made it possible for you to be a believer living in the United States of America in this day and age? Have you thought about that? Again, none of that is by chance. It's all in accord with the providential will of God. Yes, the nature of our blessing in the church age is not tied to physical blessing today, though it does look forward to a physical material blessing in the future, in the new heavens and new earth. But the reality is that you are a Christian and you're a Christian living in one of the most affluent nations on the face of the earth. And one of the most technologically and economically, economically advanced periods of human history. So what are you doing with all of that? Again, Israel's mind, their prayer was for the simple blessing of God on their basic needs, their basic livelihood, the produce of the ground. God, make it possible for us to feed our families, to continue to survive as a nation. Why? Because our survival as a nation means blessing for all nations, all people. We as American Christians, we, Catonsville Baptist Church, again, generally have all of our basic needs met. And nowadays we complain about hardship when the Internet goes out. But again, that and other things are not needs. So the challenge for us is to realize that the abundance that we have, the fact that we have enough to take care of our basic needs and we have enough to meet many of our wants, this abundance is not just for us. That may be the American way, but that's not God's way. It is to the end that all nations are blessed through the preaching of the gospel. I'll ask you a very pointed question. We're going to get a little more personal here. Does your monthly budget reflect that conviction? Does your giving on Sunday morning, whenever you give, reflect that conviction? Does it reflect the conviction that the ways in which God has blessed you as a member of the church of Jesus Christ, the ways in which God has blessed us collectively are not for our sake only, but it is to the end that all people would come to know the Lord Jesus as Savior. People often talk about giving their tithe, right? A tithe is a tenth, 10%. So many assume that 10% is a requirement for giving. 
The reality is that most people don't actually give 10% of their income, even though they talk about giving their tithe. In the Old Testament, it would have been the first fruits, meaning off the top. Usually we give after we've done everything else we wanted to do. And if you really want to be faithful to the Old Testament, 10% was more like a minimum (laughs) because they gave significantly more than that. The reality is that 2 Corinthians chapter 9 reflects more of the New Testament thought on giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says that we should give thoughtfully and in advance. He says in verse 5 of that chapter, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and to arrange in advance for the gift you had promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. He said you should be thinking ahead of time of what you're going to give. It should be bountiful. Verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It should be given willingly and cheerfully, he says in verse 7. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It should be given in faith, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. He says, if you give generously, God will provide generously to you. We just have to trust that. And it should be giving with the end in view of other people. Verse 12, for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. We give to the end that others would be giving thanks to God. Why? Because of the ministry that is done as a result of our giving. I wonder, does that describe your giving? As a church, we've had many frank conversations about our finances, about the needs of the ministry. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road right? We have that expression. We've talked about what it takes to sustain this ministry, what it'll take to build this ministry from where it is to where it could be. Though we've had many frank conversations and though there have been many appeals to look at your own personal finances to see if you're truly giving thoughtfully, bountifully, willingly, cheerfully in faith and for the good of others. I don't know what anybody gives. I'm glad to not know. I I, I never look, Um, but I don't, I don't see that much has changed just overall. We talk about these things, about the needs that we have as a ministry. We set aside time for prayer, and some people show up faithfully for that. But again, I wonder, what is your conviction when it comes to the ways in which God has blessed you as a Christian living in the United States of America? Do you think he's blessed you in whatever stage of life you're in, whether you're still in school, whether you're an adult, married or single, whether you're at the beginning or end of your career, whether you're in retirement, do you think that God has blessed you with whatever you have for you alone? Do you have any sense of the need to evaluate how you give of your time, talents, and particularly your treasures as a sacrifice for the benefit of others? This text is a reminder that the reason for the Lord's blessing is ultimately to the end that all people are blessed through us. 
That's the point. The primary reason for what we have is so that the gospel may go forth. Do you believe that? And again, does your budget reflect that? Are your wants taking up resources that could be used for the building up of the kingdom and the spread of the gospel? This is what we're here for. This is what God has called us to. This ought to be in our hearts and on our minds at all times. This ought to be a part of our prayers, both for ourselves as well as for the church. There's more. Let's consider the next point. Again, we ought to pray for the Lord's blessings so that the nations may learn of his salvation Point number two, we ought to pray for the nations to laud or praise the Lord for his salvation. Verses three through five. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. I love this quote from John Piper. Just listen to it for a moment. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And thus he concludes, worship is the fuel and goal of missions, end quote. Now that quote from John Piper, along with a book entitled, Let the Nations Be Glad, was inspired by Psalm 67 and many other texts. Worship is the goal of missions. Worship is the goal of all of our evangelism. The reality is that there are countless millions of souls, the walking dead, going about in the world who have yet to worship the true and living God. And he is worthy of worship, is he not? Again, when we think about our blessings, whatever those may be, for the gospel to go forth among the nations, at the heart of that calling is the glory of God. God deserves worship from all people. It's not just that he deserves worship from us. Like we come here to give something to God because, you know, he needs us to give worship. No, we come here to worship because he's worthy of worship. If he's worthy of worship from us, he's worthy of worship from all people. That is the core truth of the gospel message. That's the reason why we ought to have the word of the gospel on our lips every single day. Why everything we do ought to be about the gospel because God is worthy of worship. And there are people in the world who are not worshiping him. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That verse is repeated in verses 3 and 5. And you hear the emphasis. All people ought to praise the true and living God. We of all people know that. The blessings that we have have been given to us, not for our sakes only, but so that through us the peoples of the earth might know the salvation of God, that they might know his salvation, that they might praise him for his salvation. We talk about loving our neighbor as we think a little bit more about this. We talk about trying to do what's best for our neighbor and specifically our neighbor who doesn't know about the gospel. 
the neighboring nations of the earth who don't know the Lord, I wonder what's best for them. What's in their best interest? What will lead to the greatest good for them, if not the salvation of the Lord? That's underscored in the next verse. And structurally, verse 4 is the focal point of this text. The writer wanted to draw your attention to this verse. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let them be glad. Let them rejoice. How? How will the nations of the earth be glad and sing for joy? Why will they be glad and sing for joy? For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. When the nations come to know the salvation of the Lord, they will also know the sovereign rule of the Lord. They will come to know his righteousness because he will judge the people with equity and guide them. One author said it this way. The language of this psalm anticipates the coming reign of the Lord over all the earth when he will govern and lead the nations and the nations will worship and praise him. The anticipation of the coming age should inspire the believers to make better use of their thanksgiving and prayer, knowing that God blesses his people to provoke the nations to jealousy so that they will come to faith and have share in that kingdom. He says the psalm does not mention the Messiah, but it points to the glorious messianic age when these prayers will be answered in full. End quote. Think about all the leaders of the earth today. Think about all the leaders of the nations in time past. Has there ever really been a good pagan leader? One who ruled over his people with righteousness, faithfulness, in accord with truth, with equity? They didn't have any favorites. They didn't cater to a particular party or those who helped to put them in power. They didn't cater to those who had greater wealth. With this coming kingdom, social justice is no longer going to be a topic of conversation because the one who is righteous will rule with equity. Moreover, it says he will lead them. He's going to rule over them with equity, with goodness. All people will be judged the right way, the same way. In accord with his righteousness is the idea but he's also going to guide the nations on the earth. Imagine the, to get the imagery of a, a shepherd leading them to green pastures. Remember the words of, of Jesus in John 10, I have sheep who are not of this fold. He says, I will bring them also. The good shepherd has always had in view that it was not only for the lost sheep of Israel, but for the lost sheep of his chosen people from among all nations for whom he would sacrifice himself. Now, who wouldn't want a leader like that, one who would give his life for his people, one who would rule over them equitably, one who would rule over them and guide them as a shepherd? The Russian people? The people of Ukraine? The people of China? The people of North Korea? How about Americans? Could we use a leader like that? one who will rule with equity in righteousness, one who will guide people as a shepherd leads forth his flock. We don't do the unbelieving world a favor when we fail to do all that we can do to see that the gospel goes forward. When we're too concerned with our own blessings to think about how we can use them for the good of others. We don't do the world a favor as a church when we're tempted to bow the knee to the LGBTQ agenda. 
We don't do the unbelieving world a favor by catering to their whims about virtue and morality. We talk about friendship evangelism. Well, we don't do the unbelieving world a favor by waiting indefinitely until someone becomes our friend before we tell them about Jesus. That may be helpful in some circumstances, but the reality is that you don't know how long they have. Nor us. Thank you, sister. The best thing for the unbelieving world is for them to know the saving power of the Lord. The best thing for them is to be brought into his kingdom under his rule and his authority because there's joy to be had there. We profess that. We confess that there is joy in knowing the Lord. And part of the heartbeat of evangelism is desiring that joy for other people. It's not just that we want to tell other people, you don't know what you're talking about. You're worshiping the wrong God. We don't like you. You don't live right. It's that we desire their joy. We desire their greatest good because their greatest good is knowing the Lord. It's not just knowing the Lord. It's also living for the Lord. That's our last point. We ought to pray for the Lord's blessings so that the nations may live according to his salvation. Verses six and seven. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The blessing first prayed for in verses one and two is reiterated here. As I mentioned earlier, it is clear that the blessing in vision is a blessing of a fruitful land. He says the earth has yielded its increase. The earth yields, it brings forth its increase. That is the blessing of God when he says God shall bless us. We take a step back for a moment and remember that this is a psalm, so it was used as a part of worship during the harvest festival. They celebrated what God had provided and looked forward to his further provision. God's blessing upon us is a fruitful harvest. Again, that which serves to fundamentally support their economy, to provide for the basic needs of their family. It's not only in their labor alone they're acknowledging. It's not only in their efforts alone. All of what they have has been granted by the hand of the Almighty God. They're celebrating his provision. But again, they're celebrating his provision, not merely for their own sake, but ultimately for the sake of the nations. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. I call this a prayer for the Lord's blessing so that the nation may live according to salvation. Early, the emphasis was on just knowing his saving power. The ideas are very similar, but I think there is a slight distinction here. His saving power, the knowledge of his salvation is the first step, so to speak, in the process of salvation. Learning to fear him comes as a result of that salvation. As we already indicated in the middle section, those who know of his salvation will be guided by him. They'll learn to walk in his ways. I think that's the emphasis here. To fear the Lord in the wisdom literature of the Bible is the beginning of wisdom. To fear the Lord is often used euphemistically of those who walk according to his law, who live according to his law. In other words, it's not just enough for the nations to come to faith in the Lord, to learn of him. Much more than that, their desire is that through their ministry that people would come to live for the Lord. That is for us, again, verse 20 of Matthew 28, that we are to teach the nations to observe all of what Christ commanded. Yes, we're to make disciples by preaching the gospel, by baptizing, but we're also to teach them all of what Christ commanded so that they know of his salvation and live in accord with his salvation. 
any true gospel ministry ought to have that as its goal. Not just baptizing people, not just filling the pews, not just adding people to the role, but having people who are members of the church who know the salvation of the Lord, who walk in the fear of the Lord with their life measuring up to their faith, their faith being applied to every area of their life. This is, as Paul says in Romans 12, our spiritual worship. This is true and genuine worship. This is worship that befits the people of God, a life lived in the fear of the Lord. Again, as Piper said, missions exist because worship doesn't. And worship is the fuel and goal of missions. Worshiping people, people who worship with their lips as well as their lives ought to be the goal of every gospel ministry. That is the end for which we have been blessed of the Lord. The Lord has blessed us so that through us, many would come to live in faithfulness to him, to the true and living God, so that they would truly and faithfully worship him, that they would fear him and serve him only. Just a few more thoughts here. Earlier, I made the point that because of when you were born in the history of humanity, because of where you were born, you are likely in the group of those of us who have more than we need at any given point in time, And then I ask you to consider why. Why has God designed that you would be born in this period of time in this nation to have the abundance that you have in your possession? I think this passage has definitively answered that question. One author summarized the message of Psalm 67 in this way. And I quote, the faithful perceive that God's blessings have a purpose. And so their focus should be on using these gifts from God to bring people to faith. This may be summarized fairly simply. God blesses his people in order that the people of the world will come to faith in him, end quote. Over the course of this message, I wonder, have you come to perceive that the blessings of God in your life have a purpose greater than you? The same author went on to say this. If thanksgiving and prayer do not include a vision for the world, then the plan of God has been cut short of its intent. Perhaps... If the people of God include in their thanksgiving and prayers an acknowledgement of the future glorious reign of the Lord over all the earth, they might open their hearts to the present world. The day is coming. The day is coming when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the seas, the prophet said. Perhaps the reason why we don't think more about the world is because we don't think on the Lord's provision with thankfulness. We're about to sing that song. My heart is filled with thankfulness. Too often we're concerned with and lamenting the things that we don't have and the things that we've lost instead of considering with thankfulness all of what the Lord has provided. To the contrary and to the point of this psalm, we have been blessed of the Lord spiritually and as a nation materially. As a Christian, as you think of the wealth that God has provided for you over and above what you actually need in life, those basic necessities, not the wants, you should see that all of the extra he's provided for you is not for you only, but rather that he might accomplish his purposes for the nations through you. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Our gathering together this morning for worship is evidence of the fact that the prayer of this psalm has been in part answered by the Lord. We are the peoples of Psalm 67. We are the nations that were in view. Someone else gave, someone else valued the call of God to the church to make disciples. Someone else sacrificed that you would have the opportunity to hear and to believe the gospel. 
Jesus gave the greatest sacrifice of his life on the cross. And the people of God ever since have been, in Paul's words, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions so that the gospel might go forth. But that job is not done yet. There still remains many peoples, many nations who have yet to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray for them every Sunday morning. We pray for unreached people groups. Even here in the United States, as the nations come to dwell on American soil, there remains much work to be done in preparation for the day when Revelation 5.13 is realized. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That day is coming. The Lord has blessed you in abundance so that through your faithful and abundant giving of your time, your talents, and your treasures, that day would be realized for the good of the nations and the glory of God. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of your people by virtue of the covenant that you have made with us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for him who bore our pain on the cross. For him who plumbed the depths of our disgrace to give us life. For him who crushed the curse of sinfulness and clothed us in his light. For him who wrote his law of righteousness with power upon our heart. Thank you for him. Thank you for Jesus who in a display of love sacrificed all for us. Even as this Weekend, we consider those who gave their lives, their physical lives, for this nation, in service to this nation. We can't help but to be reminded of Jesus, who gave all, not just for one nation, but for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Father, help us to walk in his steps, to truly walk in his steps, and help us to give of all of what you have blessed us, so that the gospel may go forth for the good of all peoples, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.